Okay, well, I think we have nearly everybody here, so we'll get started. You ready to go? Are we recording? Oh, good morning! <laughs> Those who listen online are going to get some interesting beginnings there. Um, before we begin, real quickly, I was asked to uh, tell you that while Shirley is not here today, there are places back there for you to keep or to put what you have bought, um, you know, like the crayons and the markers and the stencils I bought that I left at home, that, like that. So if you remember to bring yours, then put them back there. Uh, and then um, also, should we ever need to cancel due to inclement weather? I, you know, when does that ever happen? But... Um, <laughs> Uh, should we ever have to cancel due to inclement weather, it will be on the church website, uh, whether we have canceled or not. And if Millard Schools is closed, we're closed. So that's the, the sort of the dictating factor is Millard, Millard Schools. And I always have to remember that because it's Bellevue Schools for our school, for our Christian school, and it's Millard Schools for church. But, you know, pretty much if one superintendent goes down, they all go down. Yeah, yeah. Our superintendent's on the hot seat right now, but we won't talk about that. Uh, do we have any questions this morning? Yes, Cindy. Right, yeah, that, that quotation from Isaiah where, where Jesus seems to say, uh, I'm going to keep you in the dark, you know, because you deserve it. it. It sounds that way, doesn't it? Um, and probably the most difficult verse to interpret in all of Mark. Uh, so I will, I will discuss that a, a little bit, hopefully, to everyone's satisfaction. I don't know. Any other questions? None? Well, let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for today, uh, for your word, for this time, um, Father, and, and for as aggravating as it can be, the beauty of the snow and of this season uh, and, and your hand that we see in the seasons and in every season. Father, I pray today that your word would be sown deeply into our hearts and our minds and lived out in our lives. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're beginning with these 34 verses where Mark uh, call, tell, tells about Jesus' parables and, and gives us some of Jesus' parables, really for the first time. And Jesus told many parables, and these are called the parables by the sea because they were all uh, given while Jesus was along the Sea of Galilee. Um, and, and there were many parables, uh, and he begins with that. He says, again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. So this isn't the first time this has happened. It's just the first time that Mark has given us any, uh, any of the parables. You can read most of these parables, all but one, in Matthew and Luke. Uh, however, in Mark, this is one of only two sections where Mark gives any sort of extended dialogue of Jesus, where we hear what Jesus taught. Because Mark is far more concerned with what Jesus did than with what he said. Um, by the way, the other section of prolonged teaching uh, in Mark is in chapter 13, and both this chapter and that chapter come right after Jesus was um, challenged by teachers from Jerusalem. That's interesting, isn't it? Uh, and the connection there. The most important word in these parables is the word here. 
It occurs 13 times in 34 verses. Now, now, if you didn't come up with 13, that's okay, because it occurs 13 times in the Greek. And so, who knows? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sometimes that just that gets shifted around a little bit. But it, but it occurs 13 times in these verses. And it is the first word of the most important verse to Jews in the Old Testament, which isn't their Old Testament, it's just Testament, which is the Shema, he, or Hebrews, Deuteronomy 6.4, which begins, Hear, O Israel. The Lord your God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength. So uh, this is, a, this is uh, important to understand because it suggests that Jesus' teaching here and elsewhere is in continuity with God's word, with what God has said through his spirit in ages past. But hearing means more than just the literal hearing of the word. So you hear my voice, but this hearing is more than that. In Mark, hearing is heeding. It requires that we receive and respond to what we have heard. Now, the first parable that Mark records here is generally called the parable of the sower, the first 20 verses of the chapter, and we have here again another sandwich, another Mark and sandwich. The middle part of this story, which is verses 10 through 13, helps us understand the whole unit, the whole 20 verses. And one of the themes of this unit is insiders and outsiders. Those who truly hear are insiders. They are with Jesus. They follow him, and then they even ask him for more spiritual insight. Tell us more. Explain this to us. Those who are merely there to oppose Jesus or just to see what happens are outsiders. The surprise in all of this is who is who? Who is an insider and who is an outsider? Some, whom everyone would have thought, even themselves, that they were insiders are actually outsiders, and vice versa. And we'll continue to see this in Mark. Uh, Now, here's the parable, beginning at verse 1. Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat and sat in it out on the lake, while all the people were along the shore at the water's edge. He taught them many things by parables, and in his teaching said, Listen, a farm, that's here, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they were withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among the thorns, which grew up and choked the plants so that they did not bear grain. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew, and produced a crop, some multiplying 30, some 60, some a hundred times. Then Jesus said, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. So where is this taking place? Well, I tried to put like between Capernaum and Gennesaret, I tried to put a little star there. It's kind of beyond my technical, technological capabilities. But there is a bay there called the Bay of Parables. And um, it's by, and I can't really pronounce this, somebody help me that's been to Israel. Tabagah? Tabaga? Or something like that. 
And uh, it's, it's just west of Capernaum. And there is there a natural amphitheater where scientists have proven that you can sit on the lake and thousands of people can hear you effortlessly. And so this would be the perfect spot. I actually, I've got some pictures. There's your natural amphitheater. Want to go there? Me too. I looked it up. There's a, there's a, I heard on KGBI there's a group going. And if Jeff and I just have $10,000 lying around, we can get there and I can see this for real. Otherwise, I'm waiting till the millennium. Uh, so, so that is this natural amphitheater. We don't know for sure, but it's, that makes sense that it's not far from Capernaum and it would be a perfect spot for this. Um, so uh, Jesus is in the boat while the people are on the shore. But that word for shore is the same word that Mark uses for soil in the parable. Uh, both for the good soil and the shallow soil. So Jesus is in the boat. The people are on the soil. Therefore, we are to see in these hearers, uh, as, uh, we are to see the hearers as soil, as the recipients of the word, the seed that Jesus is planting. He's sowing that seed. So this is therefore a parable about Jesus' teaching. And it is central to understanding everything else. In fact, Jesus says as much in verse 13. Now, there are lots of interpretations of this. One one commentary I read listed like eight different possible interpretations. And certainly there are a number of applications. But the emphasis here is on the seed and the soil that receives it. But there's more here Uh, in terms of application, more to this parable than just making sure our soil is fertile uh, soil for God's word. As good as that is and as important as it is, there's more to it. And the sower here, one thing we need to, to understand is the sower sows with abandon. I mean, he's just spreading seed everywhere. One, um, One theologian I read called it, I love this, called it profligate recklessly extravagant sowing. He's just, he's not like going and digging a hole and putting a seed in and digging. He's just spreading the word everywhere. And, and part of the reason why is the farmer isn't responsible for the harvest, only the sowing. This is what David Garland says about this. He says, the sower is not afraid to risk scattering his seeds wherever they may fall, although speaking to some people is like trying to grow wheat on the passing lane of the local expressway, to others like trying to grow wheat in a two-inch flower pot, and to still others like trying to grow wheat in Br'er, uh, Br'er Rabbit's briar patch. The seed will be sown, and generously. Only sowing will lead to a harvest. Just as God sends the rain on the just and the unjust, Jesus sows his word on good and bad soil. Aren't you glad that he does? Because my heart was really bad, rocky soil for a long time before it became a fertile place for Jesus to plant God's word in my heart. I'm going to go back here because we're still on this. There we go. Uh, so he does. He, he just spreads it everywhere. And the truth is that the farmer is not trying to waste seed. He's trying to gain a harvest. And you really don't know what kind of soil you have until you try to plant something in it. I planted tulips last year. 
a year ago last fall. Then I worried about them all winter long. I don't ever plant anything. I have the brownest thumb you could imagine. I can kill any living plant uh, quite easily. But I went to Holland, Michigan, and what do you do in Holland, Michigan but buy the special tulips? This was a frustrating process because they're like millions of tulip bulbs, and they're like, what height do you want? I don't know. What color do you want? I don't know. Where do you want to plant them? I don't know. So I picked out these tulips, and I found places to plant, and I thought they were good soil. One whole patch never came up. I have no idea why. It still had, it, I don't know, maybe it'll come up next year. Another patch, I planted in a place where the acorns fall. And so as the squirrels were digging around there, they're like, what on earth? I got the hugest acorn I ever saw. And then I saw it and they'd spit it out on, in front of my porch. Because they'd be like, that's not an acorn. And I'm like, well, there goes another tulip. I found like three of them there. And the ones that did come up, we're like really ugly, scrawny. I'm like, hello, these are Holland tulips. They're supposed to be good tulips. No, they weren't. They were lousy tulips. I thought I had good soil. You don't know until you plant what kind of soil you have. And, and Jesus says, this seed that falls on the good soil where the squirrels aren't, uh, that falls on the good soil will reap a harvest. Now, in the Old Testament, a harvest often stood for the coming of God's kingdom. It was a metaphor for that. And so in this parable, Jesus is saying God's kingdom has come. And, and he is the sower. Jesus is the sower. But the growth of the seed and the abundance of the harvest are God's work. God is at work, hidden and unobserved in Jesus and the gospel to produce a yield wholly disproportionate to human prospects and merit. It is God's work. But this parable is also about discipleship. Discipleship is not making something of ourselves. It's not something we produce in ourselves, but it is allowing God to work in and through us in order to create a, a harvest of which we are completely incapable by ourselves. Now in verses 10 through 12, Jesus gives the explanation for um, this parable. Or he, he actually, this is the kind of the, the bridge between uh, the, the parable and the explanation. And this is the key to understanding. This is the middle part of the sandwich, and this is the key to understanding everything else. He says this, when he was alone with the 12 and the others around him, asked him about the parables, he told them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those on the outside, everything is said in parables, so that they may be ever seeing, but ne never perceiving, and ever hearing, but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. And this is a hard a hard word. So this section tells us why Jesus speaks in parables, and it's the key to understanding the rest of the passage, but it is also one of the most difficult passages and probably the most difficult passage to interpret in all of Mark. Jesus is alone with his inner circle, the 12, but plus some others who had been following him. And so we are to get a picture here of, of those who are living in fellowship with Jesus. He's surrounded by these people. Those who have truly heard what he has said. And they have demonstrated by that fact because they want to learn more. Explain this to us. We want to understand what you're saying. 
Insiders, Jesus says, have been given the secret of the kingdom, even if they don't totally understand it yet. It has been given to them. They hear, they believe, and they bear fruit, which is the definition of faith in Mark. And he says it's a secret, it's a mystery, this mystery of the gospel, which is something that can only be known by revelation of God. It cannot be known until God reveals it. And this secret that, that is being revealed to the disciples is that God has come in the person, words, and works of Jesus Christ. God has chosen to reveal himself and his kingdom in Jesus. But it is still veiled because, frankly, as a song from For Him says, it is a strange way to save the world. Jesus is not what people expected. Still today, he's not. And many people then and now didn't recognize who Jesus was and is. This is how James Edwards says it. The incarnate word is not obvious. Only faith could recognize the Son of God in the lowly figure of Jesus of Nazareth. The secret of the kingdom of God is the secret of the person of Jesus. So he says, this, this secret has been given to you, and, and it's a mystery that will reveal things of which they cannot conceive. Things like seeming defeats, such as the cross, are actually victories. Or that the finality of death isn't actually final. But to those who refuse to hear, it is a bewildering puzzle. They are outsiders. To them, everything is said in parables. But it sounds here like Jesus is intentionally keeping them in the dark, doesn't it? In truth, Jesus is saying that parables are the only way to speak to them. They are unbelievers. Their hearts are hard. If he spoke the truth plainly to them, they would scoff. They would turn away. The parables, at least, keep them listening. And so the only way they might possibly truly hear and receive the word is through the parables. In this quotation, the context of Isaiah 6 is that the prophet Isaiah is being called to preach to a faithless people, to people whose hearts are hard, just like the people in Mark. But they may yet truly hear. And turn. Because you see, this term, these terms of insiders and outsiders are not, as, as one theologian put it, immutable distinctions. Some outsiders will become insiders. And we're going to see this over and over again in Mark. In the very next chapter, there's a Gentile man who is possessed with many demons. You've heard this story. They call him Legion because of the number of demons he is possessed with. He is an outsider of outsiders. And he's going to end up at the feet of Jesus going, tell me more. He's going to end up as an insider. Some who are insiders will become outsiders. Judas is in the inner circle. And he will betray Jesus. So there are not immutable distinctions. One last thing I want to say about this concept of outsiders and insiders, because that wording for us, I mean, at least for me, it gives me a picture of like kids on a playground. 
And I want to play. Actually, what it gives me a picture of is when Katie was little and two friends, two girls, came down to our house to ring our doorbell to tell Katie, we don't want to play with you today. You're an outsider. Jesus isn't picking who's inside and outside like, like some playground game. The people, by their response or lack thereof to Jesus, are choosing for themselves whether they are insiders or outsiders, whose side they are on. So then in verses 13 through 20, Jesus gives the, uh, the interpretation of the parable. Then Jesus said to them, don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? The farmer sows the word. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes it away, uh, takes away the word that was sown in them. Others, like seeds sown on rocky places, hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they, they, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they will quickly fall away. Still others, like seeds sown among thorns, hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires of other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Others, like seeds sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop, some 30, some 60, some 100 times the wheat that was sown. So here's, here Jesus calls this almost a parable of parables. Because it contains two elements that form the core of the gospel and understanding it. The first is Christology. Who is Jesus? And throughout Mark, Jesus has been revealing that he is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God, that he is the suffering servant, that he is the Son of Man. And secondly, discipleship. What does it mean to follow him? So in his explanation, Jesus tells him that the farmer, in this case Jesus, uh, sows the word, the message of the gospel, which leads to hearing the word. The first person never really even hears. The second hears, but Satan steals it. The third hears, but the pleasures and the worries of this world choke it out. That kind of hearing, both of those are kind of like in one ear and out the other, is what we would call it. The final person, the one who truly hears, that person hears and responds. It is in the present tense in the Greek, which means it is an ongoing response. It is not short-lived. It doesn't just respond initially and then turn away. It continues to respond to the word of Jesus. The key to understanding this passage then is Jesus. It is in hearing and responding to Jesus that our identity, our eternity, and our ministry are determined. So let's apply this parable. There are a number of different ways. I'm going to give two ways we can apply this parable. We too are called to sow the gospel without predetermining who is deserving or how people might respond. We are not responsible for their response. We are only responsible for our faithfulness to plant the seed. We are not called to be successful, but to be faithful. The analogy that one theologian gave is when you get on the airplane 
and the stewardess and stewards are up front and they're telling you all the emergency stuff. How many of y'all listen to that? Nobody does. Nobody listens. So why don't they just not do it? Because nobody's listening. And I mean, it's a terrible audience. Because they're talking about life and death matters. They would never stop sowing that seed. It is life and death matters, so regardless of how it's received, they will plant, they will sow, they will spread that message. A second application is in testing our own soil to see if it is good soil. Are we teachable? Even when the word we're hearing is hard? I've heard people, I have heard people justify all kinds of things. And a lot of times it's with this, this saying, well, wouldn't God want me to be happy? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. He wants us to be holy. Are we teachable? Even when someone tells us what we don't want to hear, if it is the word of God, I had a woman tell me once, I've told this story before, that I have a way of beating people over the head with a Bible, which I was offended by that. Um, and then later I thought, you know what? If I'm in sin, somebody, please beat me with a Bible. Please, I want to be able to receive that word no matter how hard it is. Do we let the cares or the pleasures of this world choke out what we know to be God's truth? Do we fertilize our soil with time in God's word and prayer and fellowship and praise? Ladies, we are called to be both sowers and doers of the word. Well, there are more parables here, um, and we begin with this parable of the lamp. He, Jesus, said to them, do you bring in a lamp to put it under a bowl or a bed? Instead, don't you put it on its stand? For whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed, and whatever is concealed is meant to be brought out in the open. If anyone has ears to hear, let them hear. Now, I wrote about this in the study, but that word there, lamp, that's actually the subject of the sentence. So what Jesus is saying is, does the lamp come in in order to be hidden? Jesus is the lamp of God. He's talking about himself here. He is the lamp of God who has come to bring light and revelation. But for the present time, that reality is hidden. And there's a theme of hiddenness in this um, in these coming parables. It is a secret. It is a mystery. But Jesus' identity has been hidden in order to be found. Only that which is hidden can be found. This will become clearer after Jesus' death and resurrection, but even then it will remain hidden to those who refuse to hear or see. The key then is hearing, truly hearing, and it is our job to tell people about it. Paul tells us that in Romans where he says, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in, and how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard, and how can they hear without someone telling them about Jesus? They'll never hear unless they are told. And then in verses 24 through 25, we hear this parable of the measure, which sounds confusing, but I, I, I probably have understood this, really understood this for the first time, so I'm excited to teach this. Consider carefully what you hear. First of all, I, I think I just sort of default, thought that he was saying, 
Consider carefully who you listen to. That's not what he's saying, is it? He's saying consider carefully actually how you hear. The new NIV changed it. Consider carefully how you hear, he continued. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you and even more. Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what they have, will be taken away from you. So what Jesus is saying here, he's assuming that we're listening to the truth. He's assuming that we're hearing the truth. He's not saying, be careful what you hear, only listen to the truth. He's saying, when you hear the truth, listen well. Really hear it. Consider carefully how you hear. Um, and so that your hearing leads to response. So what, God, what Jesus is saying here is the extent to which we allow God's word to shape us, it will be to that extent that we understand and our faith grows. To those who enter in, God will measure more faith and understanding. To those who refuse, they will become more confused. They will be mired deeper in indifference and ignorance. Man, haven't you seen that lived out? Both ways. That the more we enter into God, the better we understand, the more faith we had. And the more we ignore, the more stuck in that ignorance we become. This then is a grave warning not to turn a deaf ear to the truth of God. And then we have the parable of the seed cast on the ground. He also said, this is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain, first the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it because the harvest has come. So the farmer sows the seed, but he cannot make it grow. Indeed, he has no idea how it grows. That's what Jesus means by that. He can plant, but he can't. You know, I could have stood over those tulips. Come on, tulip. Come on. I could do nothing about it. But next year I might put like a scarecrow out there for the squirrels. I don't know. Only God can cause the seed to grow. It is invisible, hidden underground, but what is hidden becomes visible because the seed will grow and bear fruit just as it does in our lives. And when it is ripe, it is harvested. Now I told you that harvest is a metaphor for the coming of God's kingdom, but when that kingdom finally comes, the sickle of the harvest represents judgment. And at that harvest, at that judgment, some will receive life and some will not. In this parable, apart from the sowing of the seed, the only human activity is waiting. The farmer can do nothing else but wait. So in this parable, the kingdom of God is compared to the process of growth, but that process is, as, as one theologian put it, strangely independent of human act activity. God is in control of that process. He is growing his kingdom whether we realize it or not. And then we have this parable of the mustard seed, and I put some mustard seeds on your table so you could see how small. In the process, actually, I cleaned out my spice cabinet. 
It is now alphabetized. So I don't have to pull out every spice, because I had to pull out every spice to find the mustard and seed. And, and also, uh, another benefit would be that when I open that door, I no longer get an avalanche of spices, because I just piled spices on spices. The oldest spice, and you know how long spices last. I'm talking to women. It expired. We moved into the house in 2002. It expired in the year 2000. <laughs> I carried that spice from our last house, expired. Anyway, uh, I, I love this. I have a picture to show you, too. This is a great parable. Again, Jesus said, what shall we say the kingdom of God is like? Or what parable shall we use to describe it? It is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds on earth. Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants with such big branches that the birds can perch in its shade. You know what? Even scientists are like, dude, we do not understand this. All the DNA necessary for that seed to become this is present in one of those things that is on your table. Do you see those tiny little antelope things? Even science says, we, we don't get this. How does that happen? And what Jesus is saying is he's comparing this, this growth, this change to the kingdom of God. So what he's saying in this is, is that that how, how this seed has grown, that God causes the growth of, this, of his kingdom. And it is a miraculous growth. More importantly, what started in obscurity, completely hidden, in a stable, in the little unknown, seemingly insignificant town of Bethlehem, not only has grown, but will grow to something of tremendous and eternal importance and significance. By the way, that reference to the birds, all kinds of birds resting in its branches, is a reference to the fact that different, uh, different birds, it alludes to God's grace that will come to all people, that salvation is not just for the Jews, but for all who will listen, hear, and respond. And in chapter 5, when Jesus says at the end of this chapter, let's go across the lake, he's going to go spread the seed to the Gentiles on the other side of the lake. Um, here's how David Garland put it. Oh, okay, all we're missing down there is Dr. David Garland, so we've got the rest of this. During the sowing stage, the beginning of the gospel, one must take a leap of faith that what Jesus says about himself is, is, and, is, and God's kingdom is true. The kingdom of God is already present in the work of Jesus, but remains concealed and modest. Many would, many would never guess that this inconspicuous presence manifests God's power and dominion that will reach out to all nations. Religious professionals misjudged it. Even Jesus' own family missed it. The final stage will reveal a dramatic change from the beginning, but by then, it will be too late for those who were unable to see what God was doing all along. The final stage isn't now. Even today, God's kingdom, the truth about Jesus, remains concealed and not fully developed. But one day, one day, Jesus will return in glory. And as Paul tells us in Philippians, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Then the mustard seed will have come to its full fruition. And then in the conclusion, Mark just uh, tells us, or Jesus just, Mark just tells us that Jesus gave many other parables and that afterward his disciples would say, would y'all 
would you just explain this to us, please, a little bit? And then our last story for today is the story of the, uh, the storm on the Sea of Galilee. Um, and it begins in verse 35. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side, meaning of the other side of the, the Sea of Galilee. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with them, with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. So even after all the miracles, even after all the parables, even after being with Jesus all those months, the disciples have difficulty trusting the providential care of Jesus. We may chide them for that, but I find great comfort in it. Because even after more than 35 years of following Jesus and seeing all that he has done in and around me, I still have trouble trusting Jesus sometimes too. So they, they cross the Sea of Galilee, and the Sea of Galilee, even to this day, is known for its fierce, fast-rising storms. And the fishermen are in charge here. In fact, that's what it tells us in this. They took him along. Why? Because we understand this. We've been on this lake before, and we're in charge. We're the fishermen. Ironically, it is the veteran seafarers who are terrified when the storm comes up. Meanwhile, Jesus is sleeping in heavenly peace on a cushion in the stern. It is a picture of complete trust in God. Now, the attitude of the disciples uh, is really bad. It's, it's, it's more obvious in the Greek. A loose translation might be, Dude, are you going to sleep while we die here? Uh, and, and their verbal assault of Jesus was rude. They are frustrated and desperate. Ever said something you regret when you're frustrated and desperate? <laughs> I have. Um, but Jesus calms the storm with one word. That is significant. Because just as God spoke order out of chaos in Genesis, Jesus speaks order out of chaos on the sea. Who is this guy? I'm beginning to think that's what I should have titled the study. Who is this guy? By the way, Throughout scripture, sea is a metaphor, the sea, the, the ocean is a metaphor for chaos. And in Revelation, it says, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth coming down, and there was no longer any sea. There will be no more chaos, only order. Hallelujah. Someday. Even more, the language that is being used here is the same as what one would use for an exorcism. What? What's that about? 
Uh, yeah, this, this same word, or the same wording was used earlier when Jesus rebuked evil spirits. Quiet, be still. The wording is much more fitting as being addressing a personal being rather than a storm. So in verse 38, we are to see a parable of Jesus come to life. We are to see this example of how Jesus binds up the strong man. Jesus is doing battle with Satan here because Satan is trying to prevent him from getting to the other side of the lake. Why? Spoil alert. Jesus is going to spread the gospel to the Gentiles and Satan doesn't want that. But guess who's going to win that battle? With a word. Quiet. I've sometimes thought that people think that the battle of Armageddon is going to be this great battle. It may be until Jesus comes and then Jesus is going to go, and all his enemies are going to be obliterated. That's it. He doesn't have to take Satan on with a sword. All he has to say is, quiet, be still. And the chaos stops. Again, Jesus is doing here what only God can do. Who is this guy? Ironically, the disciples end up being even more terrified of Jesus than they were of the storm because they do not fully understand who Jesus is yet. And the truth is, they can't until after the cross and the resurrection. But the real threat to their faith here, the real threat to their faith is not their lack of knowledge. It's their fear and their doubt. It's a problem that we have true, have too, isn't it? But there really is nothing we need to fear. The storms of our life may not be real storms, but they're no less real. And our tendency to panic in fear and doubt when those storms arrive is no less real as well. David Garland puts this better than I ever could. And this is what he says. Reading Mark helps one learn to trust in a Savior who does not deliver us from storms, but through the storms. Christianity is not a refuge from the uncertainties and insecurities of the world. Some may be too cowardly to get into the boat in the first place. Others may wish they never had embarked and want to retreat to the safety of the shore. But then they meet raging demons, which is what they will find when they get to the other side. There are no safe places in life, and one can only find security with Jesus and a serenity that this world does not know and cannot give. Christians know that Jesus has done battle with the strong man and has one. He has beaten down the savage storms, and one has no reason to fear, fear anything from nature or the supernatural, from life or from death. Ladies, we have nothing to fear in life or in death. Dr. Edwards says, despite the disciples' fear and lack of faith, Jesus muzzles the storm and preserves their lives. What can he do when people show faith. What can he do when people show faith? What can he do indeed? Let's pray. Father God, you are a mighty God. 
and you are mighty for us. Father, we do have storms, and you're not going to deliver us from every storm, but you're going to be there in the boat with us, and you're going to deliver us through the storm. Father, thank you that you are here, that you are the God who is present with us, whatever life may bring. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thanks, ladies.